Turn with me to John chapter 8. actually going to read one verse prior to what I have just to give us some context. We're going to start at verse 30. John chapter 8 verse 30. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever but the Son abideth forever, ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with, with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said, uh, said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your Father the devil, and the lusts of your Father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Our quotation today is taken from a selection of one of our favorites here, Richard Sibbs, the Reverend Richard Sibbs. He writes, The year of Jubilee, it was a comfortable year to the servants that were kept in and were much vexed with their bondage. When the year of Jubilee came, they were all freed. Therefore, there was great expectation of the year of Jubilee. Here we have a spiritual jubilee, a manumission and freedom from the bondage we are in by nature. The spirit of life in Christ makes us free from the law of sin and death. 
There is life in Christ, opposite to the death in us. There is a spirit of life in Christ, and a law of the spirit of life in Christ, opposite to the law of sin and of death in us. So that this is our happiness while we live here, that whatever ill we are under by nature, we may have full supply in Christ. For all the breaches that come by the first Adam, there came the wrath of God, the corruption of nature, terrors of conscience, death and damnation. All these followed the sin and breach of the first Adam. All these are made up in the second. He hath freed us from all the ill we received from the first Adam, and that we have added ourselves. For we make ourselves worse when we come from Adam by our voluntary and daily transgressions, but we are freed from all by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So today we're going to be continuing our study of biblical morality and the law of God. The next four reasons that I have for you all play very nicely into chapter 20 of our confession on Christian liberty. However, instead of addressing the relationship between Christian liberty and the law of God in one sermon, which is, I found to be a monumental task to try to put that together, uh, what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time here. Because there is much in Christian liberty that is misunderstood in our day. It is misunderstood it is misapplied, and as we hear in the world people talking about liberty and what liberty means to the fallen nation that we live in, we must secure our minds in what true Christian liberty is so that we might better understand how that relates to the law of God and our duties toward God. So in the next several sermons, we will look to unfold the first of these four reasons related to Christian liberty. The reason is that the law of God not only teaches us the standard for living in the liberty we have in Christ, but is also the only true expression of it. So we're going to do this. In today's sermon, we're going to talk a general overview of the doctrine of Christian liberty. And then in the next, I think it's going to be probably three sermons after that, we're going to talk about and examine our bondage and sin, our liberty in Christ, and how the law of God fits in between that. So in this sermon, um, like I said, we're going to be uh, working a general definition of Christian liberty so that we have a working definition as we proceed forward into our coming sermons. So, let's look at our passage. The passage before us is part of Jesus' sixth discourse um, that we find in the, uh, recorded by the Apostle John. In this discourse, Jesus bears witness to his divinity, his messianic mission, um, and proclaims the truth of heaven from out, from, throughout. But the Jews... Throughout this whole passage, mock, revile against the things that Jesus says to them. Though Jesus was proclaiming the words of eternal life, they were not willing to give that truth from heaven 
even a moment to gain purchase in their ears. We hear, and our, uh, we in this passage and uh, throughout the life of Christ are continually reminded of the testimony of John and the apostle to the Hebrews when they would say that he came unto his own, but his own received him not, and he endured much contradiction of sinners against himself. Nevertheless, it appears that not all was lost. In verse 30 of, of our reading today, we see, and uh, as he spake this, these words, many believed on him. Whether this is a testimony to true saving faith or simply the preparations toward true saving faith, we can't say. It's, it's hard to make a determination one way or the other. However, what we do see is in verse 31, Jesus goes and addresses those who believed on him from that crowd specifically. He says, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now we see that he introduces a new topic into his discourse, that of freedom or liberty. So, we see that this admonition of Christ was given to those who had those perhaps first stirrings of faith. And what is he trying to tell them? He's trying to tell them that you should not find any comfort in that you have these first stirrings or that you are beginning well, but you must press on. You must press towards the end lest you fall away. You must, um, in order to be true disciples of mine, continue in not only the hearing, but in the doing of my word. As we have been hearing in the sermon series on saving faith, many might, for a time, profess to be true disciples of Christ. They may begin well, and yet it is not those who begin well, but those who end well, that will be saved. So Jesus presses them to progress beyond those first stirrings, so that, uh, as the Apostle Paul prays, ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1, 19, uh, uh, 9 and 10, forgive me. Next, we see the truth. Here described, And so you have two clauses. One, it says, Christ says that if you continue in my word, and the other one, it says truth. What is Christ doing here? He's saying his word is truth. And so what he's talking about here is that, you know, he says that not that you have obtained the truth, but ye shall obtain the truth. We must be careful with the language here because it helps us to understand something very profound. While they may have obtained some knowledge of the truth in hearing Christ's words, there was still much more to be known. And one thing that characterizes a true disciple of Christ is that there is a greater and a growing familiarity with the truth. Just as we heard earlier, there's always something more to be known. And Jesus is pressing them not to satisfy themselves in what may have brought about their first stirrings of faith, but to press onward in the truth of God's word. 
Also note here that uh, truth is described, here described, is the word of God. It is the instrumental means by which one obtains this freedom. Everybody who was there in that crowd heard the same message. Why is it that some believed and others did not? Right? We must understand that the truth here spoken of, the words of Christ are the instrumental means to obtain freedom, but they are not necessarily the effectual means. We will hear about that a little later in the passage. And so what we must understand here is that while many heard the truth of God's word, as we will see in a bit, they could not partake of it because they were of their father, the devil. There was no truth in them. They were in bondage to sin. And so the word of God fell upon deaf ears. To be under the ministry of the word of Christ is the means whereby Christ offers um, and preserves a believer in the freedom which he obtains for him. But it is not the freedom itself. So as we hone in on this concept of freedom... Um, and, and it raises several questions in our mind, doesn't it? If we're talking about freedom, we ask ourselves the question, well, what am I being free from? What am I being freed unto? Or what is the nature of that freedom? What does it mean to be in that freedom? You can see the Jews doing this same kind of reasoning in their answer to Christ, can't you? What do they say? They say, we be Abraham's seeds. Seed. We are heirs of the promise. What do you mean we're not free? We're, we were in bondage to no man. Now, if we were there, we might be inclined to refresh their minds in a couple of things. Right? Their reasoning was, if Jesus is teaching about freedom, he must be talking about the freedom from bondage to men. And if that is what he's teaching about. Well, we have, we have Abraham for our father. We have a promise. We have a promise that we are out of bondage. Right? As if the sum total of the Abrahamic promise was exhausted on the fact that they continue in some sort of corporeal or bodily freedom or autonomy. There's some things that we could say in, to negate this. Perhaps we might say to them, well, if that's what the promise to Abraham was, what was that whole deal that went on in Egypt? Or perhaps during the days of the judges when you were conquered by various enemies, or perhaps even Babylon. Or maybe the current rule of the Romans. Well, while that might be our first argument, Jesus is much wiser than us. Jesus cuts straight to their carnality. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. In these verses, Jesus refutes their petty objection by proving four things. First, that they were servants of sin. Second, that they had great need to be made free. 
Third, that this freedom only comes through Jesus Christ as the Son over the house. And fourth, that in being made free through Christ, they would be free in truth, in reality, free indeed. So let's expand upon these four a bit. First, the bondage here spoken is not temporal, it's not corporeal, it's not bodily servitude, political servitude to men of various authorities. It is not bondage to men, but it is bondage under the tyranny and dominion of sin. This is the lot of all men by nature. Until they are engrafted into Christ by faith and renewed by the Holy Spirit. For all of these Jews' self-deception here. They were miserable sinners. Servants of sin. Slaves to their father by nature, Satan. As we read on a little bit later. When Jesus says, whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. He speaks not of necessarily actual sins. Though actual sins proceed forth from this bondage. He's speaking of something much more fundamental. A corruption in them. That makes a pattern, a lifestyle, a habit of sin. He is speaking um, of that source. That spring from which all actual sins proceed. For out of the midst of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Matthew fifteen nineteen through 20. It is that corrupt tree that brings forth evil fruit. He's not addressing the fruit. He's addressing the tree. Second, they had great need to be made free. Though they are in the house, that is, they're in the visible church, they're of the community of the saints of that day, yet they are servants in the house. And the servant abideth not in the house forever. There will be a time when their servitude will be made manifest and they will be cast out of the house. Like Ishmael, who had no inheritance with the son of the free woman, as we read about in Galatians 4. The great need is to be liberated by the son, lest they be cast out forever. The third, those who attain this freedom attain it by, the adoption, uh, by adoption in Christ. When Christ says, if therefore the son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, there is an inference here, isn't there? What he's saying to them is that you are servants in the house. The son must make you free. If the servants are all cast out, who's the only people who remain? Sons. And so he's speaking to them of that adoption that we have in Christ. We must be freed, redeemed. By Christ from that bondage to sin. And as a part of that redemption, we are given adoption. Right? We are made of the family of God, brought into the house, made to have all the, the um, be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. As John says in John 1 12, for as many as received him, to them 
gave he power to become sons of God, even them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 12, to see this play out. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be uh, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We see here that Christian liberty is a benefit of our adoption as sons. Christ is not redeeming us back to zero, back to innocence. We are given much beyond innocence. We are made heirs and joint heirs with him, inheritors of the eternal life that Christ has won. And this is really where the doctrine of adoption really rises up as perhaps one of the most astonishing benefits that we can have from Christ. We are given the spirit of adoption that we would no longer live after the flesh as slaves of sin. Instead, the spirit works in us that first fruit of our adoption. He works in us to mortify the deeds of the body so that we might live eternally as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Here's where the Jews erred. They erred because they did not consider that the right of adoption was founded upon the person and work of the mediator. It must be the Son who makes us free. Fourth, and finally, the liberty obtained in Christ is a true and real freedom. All men are children of wrath and under the dominion of sin and Satan by nature. This is a real state of bondage with real effects leading to a real end. The liberty we have in Christ is likewise real. It is a real change of nature. Those who have, been, have received the grace of Christ are changed in their nature, born again, made alive in Christ. A new creation is how it's described in John 3, Ephesians 2, and 2 Corinthians 5. It has real effects because we are no longer in bondage to sin by nature. Uh, We are no longer bound to perform the lusts of the flesh. We are new creatures who who are instead made servants of righteousness, as we will see in Romans 6 in just a bit. And it has a real end. 
We will be glorified as the sons of God. All the remnants of corruption will be removed and we will receive the fullness of our adoption as sons when we are glorified, raised together with him and, and, and worshiping the Lord for all of eternity. So, thus is kind of the opening up of the passage that I want to do today. There will be more. However, what I want to do now is say, well, what then is Christian liberty? We have looked at what Christ says about the freedom. And so what we need to do is come to a right conception of what Christ is teaching us here so that we have a good uh, foothold as we proceed forward in this study. There are several things I want to say that freedom, this Christian liberty is not before we get to what it is. First thing is Christian liberty is not political or corporeal freedom. Whenever we speak of liberty generally, just the concept of freedom, there are several different ways in which we can, we can conceive of it. It can be an outward freedom, such as I have the liberty to go here and there, perhaps bodily autonomy, perhaps uh, we are free from a tyrannical government or we're not bound to a master who is our slave master. But that's not Christian liberty. Or we can be inwardly and spiritually free from the bondage of sin. That's the Christian liberty that we're talking about. It's important to remember that we can have one without the other. Right? There are many in this day who walk around where they please, not bound necessarily to any man, although we would probably say that the government has overreached quite a bit into the realm of tyranny, but we'll leave it as it may. What we have here is we can have some who walk outwardly as if I have the ability to make choices and do whatever I want to do, and yet they don't recognize their bondage to sin. Likewise, you may have a slave, or you may have a person under the tyrannical government of some society, and yet they can be free in Christ. Here I want to highlight a critical point, and this is where I'm going to draw from our last sermon a bit. Um, we talked about in the last sermon obedience being the way of blessedness, and in it we concluded that those who are given grace through faith, all circumstances, afflictions, places, and stations in this life become for them sanctifying and redemptive. Whatever the outward circumstances are, in Christ, they can be made for your good. And our wise and heavenly Father has done just that and promised that. That whatever temporal circumstances we are in, it is for the good of his children. Romans 8.28, a very well-known verse to us. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them which are called, who are called according to his purpose. Christian liberty then is not as the liberation theologians will tell you. That it is some sort of freedom from affliction, or oppression, or racism, or, uh, or po poverty, or some other social economic concern. That is not in the realm of Christian liberty. Instead, it transcends all that. 
and addresses something that is so fundamental to our nature, a bondage so fundamental to how people are brought into this world and we cannot escape from, and which has no sanctifying or redemptive value for us. There is nothing good that comes out of bondage to sin. We must also note that Christian liberty is not opposed to subjection to the civil magistrate or men as our slave masters. Instead, it gives greater weight to our lawful subjection and duties toward these authorities. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 17. First Corinthians seven seventeen. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called, being a servant? Care not for it. But if, any, uh, but if thou mayest be free, use it rather. For he that, ha- that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also, he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. So what do we have here? If we remember the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we wouldn't read the full thing for the sake of time. However, we remember that uh, this starts out with several questions regarding marriage. And one of those questions will, is, well, what do I do... If I'm married as a believer to an unbeliever, should I then get myself out of that? Because how could I be uh, tied unequally to this person? Right? What does Paul say aside from the several reasons? Don't do that. Don't do that. There's a way to serve Christ even in that marriage. And there are several reasons given. Then here he goes on to add additional callings for consideration. Are you called being a Jew? Don't seek to become uncircumcised. Instead, honor the Lord in that calling. Are you called as a Gentile? Don't seek to get out of that. Don't become a Jew. Honor the Lord in that. And how? Well, to keep the commandments of God. Okay. Well, what about the slave then? Should he try to be free? He said, care nothing for it. Why? Because there's a way to serve the Lord in that calling. Even though you're a servant in the house, you are still Christ's freeman. Now, if you have the opportunity to get free, rather use it. But don't seek it. Why? 
Because in all lawful callings in this life, there is a way to serve Christ in the liberty that he has given and to subject that calling unto his glory. So, in whatever position, calling, station, circumstance, an individual finds himself, so far as it is not in itself unlawful, is not opposed to the liberty that we have in Christ. We are not called to seek release from lawful calling structures and authorities, but to serve the Lord in them. And by doing so, they become sanctifying and redemptive to us. Second thing that Christian liberty is not. Christian liberty is not licentiousness. If you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, 15 through 28. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak not after the manner of man because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to sin, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the general principle that is set forward by the Apostle in uh, verse 16. Know ye not that whom ye yield yourself as servants to obey, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. All men are servants to someone, or something as it were. Either we're servants unto sin, to sin, or we're servants unto righteousness. The apostle contrasts one's former bondage to sin and the liberated state of the servants of God in order to answer the question for us, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if we're servants of sin, how are we described? Well, we're described as Yielding our members to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. That is, yielding the whole of our being, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our body, to greater heights of uncleanness and iniquity. All of our faculties and powers being persistently exercised in sin. 
Second, free from righteousness. Not to say that we're free from the duty of righteousness or that uh, we owe God and man nothing that is required in the law for the condemnation of the law is still upon us, but there's no desire or effort. Men walk through this world thinking, there's no God. I can live my life how I please. Licentiousness. And having their end in death. The end or wages of such a state of bondage is the wrath and curse of God and eternal damnation. That's on the one side. But if we're liberated from the bondage of sin by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are those who serve righteousness. Ye became servants of righteousness, verse 18, yielding your members servants of servants to righteousness unto holiness, verse 19, the end everlasting life, verses 22 and 23. We see in these parallels how antithetical and irreconcilable these two states are. We've heard this before in previous sermons. To be in bondage to sin is to be free from and contrary to righteousness. To be liberated in Christ is to be free from and contrary to sin. They are polar opposites. In both cases, we are serving something. Service to sin, that's called bondage. Service to Christ and righteousness unto holiness, that's called liberty. You may also add for an additional proof uh, Galatians chapter 5, 13 through uh, 26. For the sake of time, we'll skip over reading it. But when you read that passage, one thing that you're going to note is that um, Christian liberty is not to be used as an occasion for the flesh. It is not to further us in sin. That's opposite to what Christian liberty does for us. Paul focuses on liberty as it relates to our duties before fellow man, that you shall love, one, uh, shall love thy neighbor as thyself. And guess what? We're seeing the law of God already put forward as to how we are to express our liberty one towards another. Because he will go on a whole list of sins, and then what does he do afterwards? He gives the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, that's liberty. The contrast is set between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the spirit. The former is our bondage to sin. The latter is our liberty in Christ. So I want to give you a working definition of liberty. If I start seeing smoke from the pens, please forgive me. I'll try to repeat it twice to help. Um, so here's what I, what I plainly would have set forward to you. Christian liberty is first a spiritual liberty. It is wherein the elect of God, by virtue of Christ's sanctifying, or I'm sorry, salvific and mediatorial work, are redeemed from the servitude of sin and all of its accompanying yokes of spiritual bondage, and quickened and enabled to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness with all the rights and privileges of their adoption as children of God. You read that again, because I fell over a couple times. Christian liberty is a spiritual liberty wherein the elect of God, by virtue of Christ's salvific and mediatorial work, 
are redeemed from the servitude of sin and all its accompanying spiritual yokes of bondage and quickened and enabled to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness with all the rights and privileges of the adoption of sons of God. Let's break that down. First, it is a spiritual liberty. As we have seen, it's not meant to be considered as the liberation theologians would tell us, as if we are freed from governments or slave masters and so forth. But it is a liberation from our natural condition of bondage to sin. Second, it's by virtue of Christ's salvific and mediatorial work, as we will see in greater detail in coming sermons. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our salvation. He has done all that is necessary for our liberty. Whether it's effectual calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, coming uh, glorification, and all the means unto those things are all accomplished by Christ. It is done. If we here are to have any liberty from the bondage of sin, as we heard the Lord say, the Son must make you free. First long, long portion of the sentence, wherein we are redeemed from the servitude of sin and all of its accompanying yokes of spiritual bondage. In this portion, we have our liberty considered in its negative relation to the bondage of sin. It is liberty from the dominion of sin. It is freedom from the guilt of sin, the wrath of God, and the curse of the moral law. It is freedom from, the, from bondage to the present evil world, to Satan, and to the dominion of sin. And it is freedom from all the miseries associated with the state of sin. It is completely addressing every aspect of our bondage. And it is a quickened... Uh, it quickens and enables us to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness with all the rights and privileges and benefits of our adoption as sons of God, children of God. If we see liberty considered, uh, here we see liberty considered in its positive aspects, right? It's from something, it's unto something else. It is a liberty unto newness of life. It is a liberty unto righteousness and holiness. Imperfectly in this life, but perfectly in the next. It is a liberty of sons, whereby we are given all the rights and privileges as sons of God. So in coming sermons, we are, like I said, going to unfold this a little bit more. The next one is going to be hard, and then there is going to be a lot of relief in the following one. Um, but for now, let's make several applications before we close. First, let's take a note from our Lord Jesus Christ here, the, the great care he demonstrated toward those who were showing the first stirrings of faith. How he turns immediately to them to consider not their strength, but the strength of him and his work. That alone can liberate us from the bonds of sin and bring us into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Our focus and meditation must not be on our own ability to free ourselves, for there is no power in us. 
that can free us from sin, but on what Christ has already accomplished. The resounding cry of the Lord on the cross proclaiming, It is finished, ought to resound in our ears as the trumpets of jubilee. Proclaiming freedom and liberty to all those united to him by faith. Nothing is to be added by our merits to secure our freedom from the bondage of sin and death. He has accomplished all that is necessary. As Psalm 68, 18 says, Thou hast descended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received uh, received gifts for, for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. And we say with the psalmist, Selah. Second, let us diligently hearken to the Lord when he says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, especially as we examine ourselves and consider the remnants of corruption that still remain in us. There is much to grieve, to mourn, to cry over with regards to those remnants that remain in us. While we have not yet received the fullness of the grace that frees us from the remnants of corruption in this life, yet we have a promise and a hope that a day will come when we shall receive the fullness of our adoption, when we are fully and finally made free from all sins and glorified in perfect holiness and righteousness, worshiping the Lord for eternity. Today is the day for tears. Today is the day for mourning and sorrow for sins. For there is a blessing of God in them. Don't let me dissuade you from that. But don't let it be unto despair. Because Christ has given us liberty. He is faithful and just if we confess our sins to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 1.9 And know that you have this promise. He which has begun a good work in you will complete it. Philippians 1.6 On that day when the Lord returns and the glorious liberty of the sons of God is made manifest for all, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21.4. Let's close in prayer. Yeah, please stand with me. (laughs) Sorry. Our Heavenly Father, words fail us often in expressing our thankfulness unto Thee for the liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is a perfect liberty and one which is able to address every part of our bondage to sin and the remaining corruption in us. We are thankful, Heavenly Father, that Thou hast given us the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, as our Redeemer. For in his perfect work, 
we may have sure hope of the great promises that thou hast given us in thy word. We pray, Father, that we would walk in liberty unto obedience, that that would be the expression of our thankfulness unto thee. Though imperfectly in this life, yet received in grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that thou would help us and strengthen us in that liberty which we have in him, that we may press forward, growing in our knowledge of the truth, and that knowledge working in us through the work of thy spirit to bring forth every good word and work. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.